Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Kim Morrison, the founder and portfolio manager of uh, Argyle Group, the asset manager that runs the Argyle Water Fund. You may recall in previous episodes, we've spoken with Kim when the fund was under the name of Blue Sky, um, which we touch on during the podcast. The fund, uh, as Kim will elaborate on and quickly touch on, is a fund that invests in water rights. Uh, It has had fantastic performance since inception with a compound annual growth rate uh, of 19% per annum, and it was up a similar amount for the last 12 months, being exceptionally strong performance. Many people uh, are attracted to this asset class due to its uncorrelated Uh, return profile to traditional assets in that sort of alternate bucket in a portfolio. We we cover a number of topics, including the recent drought, the political issues facing water rights and what that means for the fund going forward. I think you'll find it a really interesting listen and discussion as I did. Kim is really a quality performer and a quality investment manager. As a reminder, I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. This podcast isn't designed, nor is it to be taken as advice or recommendation of any specific product. People are encouraged to get advice before making any investments. Additionally, please remember to send me your feedback. Uh, You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please, it's really helpful if you rate the podcast and or share it with those that you think may get benefit from it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kim Morrison as much as I did. Kim, welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks, David. Kim, could we kick off perhaps with you giving our listeners just a summary of the fund? Of course, we had you on the uh, on the podcast previously, but I think it would serve our, our listeners well. And those who maybe haven't listened to some of the early episodes to understand uh, what the fund seeks to do and how it does it. So our water fund invests in water entitlements, which are the perpetual right to access water and annual annual allocations of water out of various different systems around Australia. And we've invested in these uh, entitlements as a, as a key input to agriculture, um, particularly irrigated agriculture, which is uh, irrigating some of the more high value crops. So in Australia, water is incredibly scarce, uh, fresh water, and it's a vital input to agriculture. And we see this as a way to invest in the sector, provide new capital to farmers and innovate as far as being able to do leases of those water entitlements back to farmers, selling water forward to them, allowing them to manage uh, their risk profiles, um, and at the same time, capture some of the investment returns from the agricultural sector along the way for the investors in the fund. So the fund actually achieves returns out of two things. One, uh, because we're selling water every year, we're deriving an income uh, for the investors in the fund. And over time, we seek to um, invest in entitlements, which we believe will appreciate in capital value, reflecting their scarcity. And Kim, of course, you're under a different name uh, being uh, Argyle Group now, uh, as opposed to uh, Blue Sky when we first spoke to you. Do you want to maybe take our listeners through uh, what's led to that change and how that's gone about? Certainly. Um, So we started life actually as a private company, um, as Blue Sky Water Partners, and uh, 
And then in 2011, we rolled up and formed a part of uh, what was a conglomerate of different fund management businesses as Blue Sky Alternative Investments alongside a private equity business, hedge funds, venture capital, real estate development. Um, our businesses remain sort of focused on agriculture and investing in water rights. And uh, after the corporate uh, collapse of the head company, uh, we've basically privatised the agricultural and water management business back out to what it used to be years ago. Um, so it's owned by the management team and uh, we have Oak Tree as a cornerstone shareholder as well as a minority, uh, but essentially we're getting back on with in managing investments in agriculture in Australia, which is a very large private equity marketplace. In fact, um, you know, there's 30,000 odd different farm businesses in Australia and, and there's very few listed farming companies. So this is mostly a market which requires private capital invested over the long term. And that's essentially what we're seeking to endeavour to raise and deploy sensibly in different industries. And our particular focus has been on irrigated agriculture and water specifically for that. Kim, have, in that process, have any of your service providers changed in terms of trustees or independent valuers and fund administrators? No, nothing's changed as far as the fund. It's just rebadged the name. Uh, the management team is the management team that's been in place there managing the fund over many years. Um, you know, I've been at the forefront of this along with um, three other people in Adelaide who've uh, who formed part of that team that have uh, set up, raised the capital, managed the fund since uh, we first commenced this fund in 2012. And um, in terms of service providers, you know, we've always had an independent custodian, independent administrator of the fund, uh, calculating the unit prices and so forth. And, uh, and that continues to be the case. So, um, we have, you know, all of those sorts of healthy hygiene factors, if you like, as we're just a contracted manager um, outsourcing all the other functionality where uh, other people have better systems and expertise than we do, uh, and and uh, we rely on these third parties. Then, as far as valuation, there's a range of different firms involved, um, you know, that we rotate amongst over time. Um, we are currently using CBRE as the valuer of the fund um, and there's about a half a dozen other names that we could avail ourselves of in, in assessing the value of these underlying water entitlements. There's a reasonable degree of transparency around um, the water entitlement values for the portfolio that we invest in, mainly because they are mostly concentrated in the southern Murray-Darling Basin and there's quite a lot of turnover in those assets from month to month. Uh, so it's relatively easy to observe values uh, week to week. Okay. And uh, Kim, I, I you know, have to say congratulations. The performance of the fund has been uh, very good since inception back in 2012. Uh, compound annual growth rate of just a touch over 19%. Of course, last year was very strong at, at 19% as well. I think one of the things you would probably flag is you probably don't expect the next 12 18 months to be as strong as the last 12 to 18 months would that be fair yeah well look i guess we um we've seen quite a lot of growth in the capital values in the recent few years um and we've always anticipated that um, this sort of investment would be able to generate around about a 10 percent per annum return comprising income roughly about half of that and capital growth the other half of that um 
and we've exceeded that certainly um, over the last couple of years um, out of two things really. One has been our selection of which entitlements we invest in because uh, there's about 300 different water entitlement types around Australia and, and we assess all of those to identify which are the ones that we think are going to be uh, deriving the highest yields for the fund and also exposed to where's the most change going on that drives capital value. Um, and that now represents about 20 different entitlement types. So uh, the, the returns are a reflection of how we've deciphered all of those different investment opportunities and the ones we have invested in. And then secondly, along the way, we have to sell water to generate that yield. Um, and that's something which we're doing throughout each year. So we might be selling in forward markets, um, selling forward to farmers for delivery in future months. We might be selling for delivery today in a spot market, or we may be carrying water forward, uh, holding it over on our position and, and then delivering it into a different uh, annual period. Uh, the water period annual year runs from July to June, and uh, we can carry water from one year to the next if we see that there's a, a benefit in doing that. But mostly we are just uh, selling throughout the year, um, and we do carry over very little uh, from one year to the next. And Kim, it's quite a topical uh, subject and it's hit the press of recent times given the bushfire season we've gone through and are going through and uh, everyone in Australia would be well aware of uh, some of the you know, really terrible fires we've had. Um, but I also note in your monthly update uh, for the period finishing December, uh, 2019. You actually flag in that that uh, 2019 was officially the hottest and driest year Australia-wide on record. And then I think also, if I'm right, you also referenced that December uh, was officially the hottest month on record Australia-wide. Um, <clears throat> what What's the political landscape for water rights at the moment like? Uh, well, yes, we've had some pretty horrific climatic conditions the last year. And in fact, you know, three years running now, there's been very much below average rainfall in a large part of eastern and northern Australia. So uh, that's been a reflection of a climatic pattern, which now appears to perhaps be breaking down um, at the present. In, as we speak in January, we're getting some reasonably good rainfalls across northern Australia now. So that's uh, a marked difference the last couple of years, which is pleasing. Um, and whether or not that extends into changing the pattern through um, you know, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, as we go towards the traditional sort of more uh, rainfall dominant winter period, well, that remains to be seen. But um, certainly as far as the variability of Australia's climate, um, this is something which has long been known and we have a highly variable climate. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to note that 2019, yes, it was the hottest year on record, but but the previous, sorry, the driest year on record, but the previous driest year was 1902. So it's not as if, uh, you know, we haven't had a history just in the recent times of, of climatic variability. It's been something that's a constant in Australia. And that's partly the reason we sought out to invest in water rights in particular from our history involved in the sector in agriculture. We know that we have a highly variable climate investing in agriculture then is fraught with the variability of what that means for productivity. Um, if you don't have rain and you're reliant on it, you can't produce a crop, then that means you've got to be very patient with your investment horizon. Uh, whereas, you know, we understood the nature of water as a key input and uh, how that is something that then 
is able to then drive returns year on year. If we have secure water, you can grow permanent crops, you can derive an annual income out of doing that. And that's why we've deliberately sort of focused on that area in Australian agriculture as an investment. And how are governments approaching this or facing this? I think you've said in the yeah. past that, you know, what Australia has done in separating the rights around water and land is actually leading to a very efficient allocation of a scarce resource, which is in the national interest, um, and, and also a very good use from an environmental standpoint. And there's something like 66% of flows through those major rivers are, in fact, for environmental purposes I think you've said in the past but, but tell me where that is standing because you know you, there is a bit of noise in the media um, <clears throat> whether or not it's uh, fishers you know the fact that everyone's got a camera on their phone now and they not only can they capture football players getting up to bad things they can also capture uh, fishers dying in dried up rivers um, where does that sort of stand at the moment in your view? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, given Australia's climate, water is a very uh, topical and passionate issue, and particularly in times of drought where there's scarcity and, and you know, we can witness right now the haves and the have-nots, and, and obviously there's uh, vast differences in sort of economic returns and social and economic impacts from those who are able to access a resource and those who are not. Uh, but that's part and parcel of how we've set up this regulatory framework in Australia where we have said, okay, water scarce, how do we allocate it amongst competing users? We need to do so some way that is fair and reasonable and that's effectively through a market mechanism, which is exactly what's going on now. Water is scarce in the southern Murray-Darling Basin. There's not much around this year. There's a lot of people competing for it and they're doing so on the basis of the economic returns they're able to generate out of using that water. So for those people who've invested and own water rights, they're lots and mostly all held by farmers. Um, they have spent the money and invested in the ownership to get uh, access to water at different annual periods. There's different types of water entitlement type, types, uh, different uh, security types. High security costs a lot more because they are more reliable. You have to spend a lot more to own them. General security, not so reliable and therefore they don't cost as much, but you don't get as much water when you have periods of drought. Um, all of those things are interacting with each other and in these markets where the water price is being bid to a level which reflects the economics of the better performing farmers. And uh, there are other farmers who are questioning, well, how can anyone afford this price for water? And that's because that those farmers may be not growing the same crops. So uh, once you come to understand sort of the economics of what people are using water for it's vastly different you know it compared to traditional industries for instance of growing rice or cotton or irrigating pasture for dairy you know we have expanded uh, quite significantly the areas of permanent agriculture that uh, say citrus and almonds and pistachios avocados table grapes they're the sorts of things that have been benefiting out of free trade agreements Australia's been writing over the last 10 years or so and that's translated into new investment in permanent crops which derive higher value than the traditional commodity crops we used to export in bulk. So that's part of the driver of why we've seen the returns we've seen, why we've seen appreciation in water um, is an expansion in these high value crops. The overall regulatory settings 
this is part of the design that's been worked out over many years, over decades, that we as uh, the various governments in Australia basically sat down to work out a framework of how to allocate water and basically put in place a framework where that's a market-driven outcome, where people can trade, buy and sell uh, that resource to enable it to go to its highest and best use. So there's an incentive right now for anyone with a, you know, a small amount of water who's not, who might have traditionally been growing cotton or rice. Uh, they can't necessarily return the same, the same return in growing a crop as they can in simply selling the water. And that's what they're doing. They're selling that water. They're being compensated through the market to, um, to sell any water they have uh, that then supplies to higher value crops. And the permanent agricultural producers are then able to buy water to sustain their operations through a severe drought. And are people like yourselves or traders or investors a material part of the market? And I think you alluded to this in your, your recent commentary um, and or have any effect on the pricing mechanism? Well, look, there's a, the amount of entitlements that are owned by non-farmers is a relatively small amount of entitlements on issue. The vast majority, I'd say 85, 90% of entitlements are owned by farmers themselves. And there's a small proportion like ourselves and others who are owning and investing in water rights. Uh, we though are still motivated to have that water move to farmers and, and we're selling throughout the year the water that we own or we get allocated uh, and we're leasing that out. Um, we're providing it to irrigators. So we're not sitting there and not using it for any purpose at all. We're um, making it available to farmers along the way. And there's, I guess we feel a, um, a need and the marginal expansion that these um, various irrigators are performing. So they know because we're available to lease water to them or to buy forward that they can do that. They don't necessarily need to own all the water entitlements to supply the, the uh, different enterprises that they are pursuing. And they have over the last you know, two decades developed an appetite to basically be able to buy forward when they need to additional water, whether that's from other farmers around them or whether that's from non-landholding owners of these entitlements but uh, there's certainly no one to my knowledge is sitting there and not having this water being utilized by irrigators it's just a matter of which irrigators and there are as i said vast differences in economics between annual crops that might derive you know two or three hundred dollars a gross margin after per megalitre after all their costs mm -hmm. through to um you know permanent crops where you know there are returns that are better than a thousand fifteen hundred two thousand dollars a megalitre return so when you've got a tenfold difference in the actual return that can be generated that means that there are some vastly different competing economics that are going on in that in that marketplace for water as an input and, and do you think regulators and governments appreciate that? Uh, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, certainly, you know, I think most politicians do uh, are understanding that there are lots of different competitors for that water, but um, some of them represent specific geographies and, and in that geography may not be those same sorts of crops that are competing. So we are seeing uh, water moving between different districts and that translates into water moving between different electorates if you like mm -hmm. and you have some politicians whose districts are there therefore seeing the decline in some traditional industries 
and you've got others that are seeing new plantings going on. So for example, somewhere like Shepparton in Northern Victoria, traditionally a big dairy area where they irrigated pasture, you know, we're seeing that uh, those dairy farms are no longer profitable um, at this water price and therefore they are scaling back um, and exiting that water that used to be used in their district is instead being applied further downstream on permanent agricultural crops like citrus or table grapes or almonds and deriving a higher return. That's benefiting towns like Griffith and Mildura, for example, or Renmark, um, at the expense perhaps of what was traditionally grown around Shepparton. So that sets up this sort of, in the political sense, um, you know, a lot of angst obviously between those who used to use water and return to certain uh, profitability for that. And now that there's uh, competition for that resource, uh, then maybe not keeping up with that, that uh, competition and, and where that water's now moving to. So it's a matter of how we repurpose those farms um, and those enterprises and whether or not uh, we get an adjustment back the other way. But um, certainly in agriculture, there's always been a constant sort of adjustment going on. The number of farmers in Australia has been in a steady decline. It doesn't mean there's less farms being farmed. It's just been an aggregation certainly over time. But um, any of the statistics will clearly show you there's tens of thousands of farmers that every decade are losing, leaving the industry. Uh, as we've had aggregation, and that's had an impact certainly on um, you know all the regional communities that um, have declined in size and services, and that's uh, a perennial issue for for many in rural communities. Kim, how do investors that are heavily focused on uh, ethical, social, and governance issues, an ESG overlay, um, an institutional investor of so forth that has that or as a mandate or so forth. How does how do they typically view a fund like yours or similar to yours? Well, if you think about, I'm, I grew up on a farm myself, and mm. you know the team that we have here, we're pretty passionate about agriculture, and what we're actually trying to do is address this issue by bringing a new source of capital to agriculture. So we are investing not only in water, but we're investing in farmland developments. We're investing capital to increase the productivity of farmland. And you know, we are therefore focused on those higher value crops. We're investing in the development of, of more almond orchards and citrus orchards and macadamias and so forth, where there is a higher return for the scarce resource, which is water. Um, that then is a new source of capital for agriculture. You know, as I said, these are, it's a big private equity marketplace, you know, 30,000 farm businesses, which are largely all family owned and they have very limited access to capital. They're not listed companies. They can't do anything other than go to the bank and see if they can borrow more and the debt fund themselves. Um, so, you know, that's, I guess, the opportunity we see is to how do we raise capital and approach the various different funds and particularly, you know, look at how we can invest in regional Australia to increase uh, the development of, of those different regional communities, enterprises in regional areas. We're bringing a, a method of managing water so that it is flowing to its highest and best use. It's valued appropriately. It's not being wasted on something that's a low value crop because we are uh, respecting how scarce it is and trading it to its, you know, and making it available to its highest and best use. So there's a, you know, along the way, we're providing you know, the governance, I guess, of a, you know, professional investment management business that's oversighting where's this capital being deployed, 
you know, what's the reporting that's then required, what's the accounting that's required at the farm gate level, which you know does tend to lift um, the sophistication of the people that we're working with, you know, that they're professional managers of those farmland assets and they're very focused then on generating an investment return, which is quite a contrast, if you like, to the kind of traditional Australian, um, I guess, perception of a lot of farmers out there just in it for a lifestyle. Well, that's not the case. Uh, that may be so by numbers, but 15% um, you know, of farmers make 85% of the profits and uh, they're the ones who tend to be aggregating these assets and you don't hear much about them terribly because they are private family businesses but at the same time they have lots of opportunities in front of them because of things like free trade agreements and the growth of per capita wealth in Asia and they want to go and pursue those but need capital to do so which is exactly what we're trying to facilitate. And Kim what does 2020 look like for the water fund? Uh, what was the uh, well, 2020 and beyond. Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, from the very beginning, we, you know, we, we can't forecast the weather. We don't know what's going to happen any better than anyone else. Of course, we do look at all these long range forecasts and so forth. But, um, you know, that's part and parcel of why our fund is not correlated to anything else is because we are you know, invested in something which the returns are going to um, be impacted by weather events. So, that's one of the appeals of including this in your portfolio. It's not at all correlated to uh, the Dow Jones. Um, it's a random sort of driver there that uh, we try to manage the best we can. We mitigate that as best we can through setting up what are we invested in, different geographies, different entitlement types, different security types, exposed to different crops. Um, so, you know, to say to you, look, what does 2020 look like? Um, you know, our expectation is that after three years of drought, uh, we certainly hope that we're going to see a, a swing back towards um, uh, some more normal rainfall patterns, whatever's normal in Australia. But um, you know, we'd like to think that uh, we've seen the worst of these drought conditions and that uh, we'll start to see things changing uh, to, um, to increase the amount of rainfall in southern Australia. Um, we still see the growth in these permanent agricultural crops. Uh, we're still experiencing some great returns at a farm gate level amongst um, these crops that we export. You know, even wine grapes has, has a resurgency, uh, but citrus, almonds, table grapes, uh, there's still investment ongoing in developing those crops out. Um, so we expect that that's gonna continue to be a driver for or supporting the values of these entitlements uh, you know, through throughout the next few years at least. Um, so I don't expect we're going to see such a rapid capital growth that we've had the last couple of years that we do expect to moderate. But at the same time, we're you know, leasing up entitlements now at um, very healthy uh, cap rates that haven't been compressed at all, even though we've seen a doubling in the asset values over the last five or six years. And do you think there's any possibility that the recent bushfires and the record dry uh, that we've had and the heat uh, might be, as some people are saying, the, the sort of Port Arthur type um, event that leads, you know, political momentum to making some sort of large capital expenditure changes that, you know, totally changes the water infrastructure environment in Australia. Uh, look, I think, 
in the regions in which we're invested in the Murray Darling, we've had this you know decade long process to basically work out the sustainability of um, the water resources there and address through the Murray Darling Basin Plan what is the proportion of water that we're going to maintain in the rivers and allow it to flow through for environmental flows and then after that's been accounted for what's the proportion that uh, can be used for extractive industries predominantly agriculture i don't think as a definition that we're going to see any new dams built in those river systems whatsoever i think uh, where the development's likely to occur if any is going to be where there's more rainfall and uh, patterns like northern Australia. Um, I think there'll be a focus there. Perhaps um, there's still you know, smaller systems that are being developed in, in Tasmania even. Um, so I think where we're invested is probably capped in terms of any new availability of water. There just simply isn't enough to go around and building any new dams is going to be something which flies fully in the face of this, uh, this effort that we've had over decades to address the sustainability of the basin plan. So politically, I think, um, you know, when that basin plan was determined in 2012, it was a pretty bipartisan approach. It was after a long debate and everybody compromising on all sides. Uh, but taxpayers in Australia, well, we've put up, you know, 13 billion odd dollars to address the sustainability of the system by buying back water rights and investing in better infrastructure to um, to save water for the environment. Um, and I don't see that uh, there'll be much political will to turn the tide against that and um, and go and start building new dams in that same geography. Kim, look, thank you very much. It's been uh, really informative. Great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the performance today. We hope it keeps on uh, trucking along as it has been. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.